Good morning. My name is Ellie Jones. Please listen to God's word from Psalm 73. We'll be reading different excerpts, so starting with verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. You know, my first real crisis of faith came when I was about 20 years old or so. It had only been three years since I had, had really kind of committed myself to Christ, and I was in Bible college uh, training to be a pastor. I was getting, uh, I was majoring, I had a pastoral major with a minor in youth ministry and a minor in congregational gathered worship. And I found myself in this situation where I started wondering, do I even think this is even real? It was hard to find somebody to talk to about it. This was in the kind of Bible college where we didn't just ridicule the intellectual inferiority of atheists. Uh, we also made fun of the Methodists and the Presbyterians for not understanding the Bible the way us good Baptists did. So it wasn't a welcoming place for doubts. And I'd like to say that all of my struggles were you know, intellectual, that they were all up here, of how could a good God allow suffering? What about those who have never heard the gospel? What about all the injustice I see in the world and a God of justice? I wish I could say my doubts were intellectual, but if I'm honest, there was this girl. And I kind of liked spending time with her, and she kind of made it clear that my sort of perspective on Christianity and on God was uh, absurd, or at least worthy of ridicule. Now, to be clear, this person I'm talking about is not the red-hot firecracker that I married <laughs> later. Just want to make sure that's clear. But the more time I spent with this particular person, a few years before I met my wife, uh, the more time I spent with this person, the less I wanted to believe. Now, I'm up here preaching, so you'd be forgiven for wondering, well, what brought you back? And it turns out the thing that has drawn me back to faith every time I've had a crisis of belief, when I've found myself again in that place where I'm wondering, is this really true? The same thing that drew me back then is the same thing that draws me back every time. It's worship. It's worship. What we do when we gather together every week has the radical ability to transform your life and your perspective on the world that we go out of these doors out into and live in, when I was able to take, as the psalm we just read also illustrates, as I, as I was able to take the kind of inside-the-room perspective, the what we believe to be true, what we declare to be true inside of this room, and apply it to my understanding of life outside of this room, 
it brought me back to the faith. And it has continued to bring me back to the faith every time that I've started to wonder again, is this really true? See, we're in Psalm 73 this morning because in this psalm, uh, we're reading a a pretty similar story from this uh, guy named Asaph. If you haven't turned to Psalm 73 already, uh, open up uh, your copy of Scripture and turn there. Uh, There's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you need one, it's on page 574. You can pull up the Faith Church app and hit the Scripture button. It'll pull it right up for you, however you follow along. Turn to, to Psalm 73. This psalmist goes through and honestly, viscerally puts into poetry, into song, his own crisis of faith, his own dark night of the soul, uh, in a way that we maybe wouldn't hear too often now. But as we go through this psalm, and as we explore the journey that Asaph went through, and a journey that many of you have gone through. I, I, want, I want you to keep this thought in mind as we come back to this psalm over and over and over again. Worship, a key moment of worship, is what finally brings Asaph's outside of the sanctuary perspective and his inside the sanctuary perspective together. A key moment of worship, and as we've been talking through our own worship, and we're today talking about what happens when we pray together, I want you to keep this thought in mind. When we pray together, it holds our worlds together. Prayer together holds our worlds together. Let's jump into Psalm 73. If this is the same Asaph that we read about as having served under King David, then this guy is the guy who is responsible for most of uh, the, the music within the temple. Uh, he'd be the uh, equivalent of like a, a worship pastor today or a worship leader, like any one of those who were up here on stage a few minutes ago leading us in music and song. Uh, this, this is Asaph's role. His job is to lead the gathered congregation daily in worship that reflects their gratitude to God as a people, uh, that helps them express their individual gratitude to God. That, that's this guy's role. And so he starts this psalm kind of the way you would expect a guy with that job to start it. Truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. Then there's a a turn like all good art. It gets personal and emotional and gritty and real. Truly, God is good. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And he describes this sense of, imagine a spiritual vertigo, right? You remember when, when you were kids and still a little foolhardy and you would run to the edge of a cliff and kind of look over to see how far down it was and your stomach would just, or for some of you, you take a step up on a ladder and you just start to go a little queasy, right? That's what he's experiencing, kind of a, a spiritual vertigo, a stomach-lurching disorientation because what he's experiencing and what he's seeing don't line up. And so his body's trying to make sense of it. He's experiencing a spiritual vertigo as he looks at the world around him 
from the position of where he stands as a leader in the church, in the synagogue, in the temple. So he says, truly, surely God is good to, to Israel, to those who are impure in heart, but as for me. And, and that may be where some of you are today. Thinking, well, yeah, sure, God is good to the, to the good people. Maybe he's, he's good to the people he's chosen, but me? And you know, if, if that's where you are, I've been there. The people seated around you have probably been there. The Bible is written by people who have been there have looked at the world around them and said, I don't understand how to take what I see out here and how to make it make sense with what I'm being told when I'm in here. They don't, it doesn't fit together. And with that foundation of faith kind of falling away from underneath him, Asaph is experiencing this kind of queasy, like, I just, I, I, don't, I, can't, I don't have it all together anymore. And we can tell he's been thinking about this for a while. He's been experiencing this for a while because when he goes to explain what exactly it was that made him feel this way, he, half the psalm is on the incident. Look at verse 3. He admits, I was, here's why I was stumbling, here's why I was slipping, uh, because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You've got a guy who's leading the congregation in worship, and he's saying, I'm up there doing it, and I'm not even sure I believe it anymore, because when I look out there at all of the, the pretty and happy and successful people, and then I look at my own life, maybe God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart, but he hasn't been good to me. Look at Asaph's description of the people that he's, he's looking at and envying. It's in, in verses 4 all the way through 11. And, and one writer talking about this psalm, he says, you know, this, this is a description that is perennial in its timelessness. Asaph is describing kind of the elites of his day in the same way that we would read on a gossip magazine or on a gossip website, they have no physical problems at all. They're healthy and beautiful, fit and trim. They don't have the same kind of concerns that you and I deal with because they have enough money to pay other people to be concerned on their behalf. They can get what they want. They can do what they want. They can run over anyone they want because they know who to call if they ever get caught. So they, they store up wealth, look great, and Asaph, this guy up here leading in worship, is looking at them and saying, their life looks great. He compares their life to his own. Verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Always comfortable, with a nice passive income as their portfolios continue to grow without them having to work at all. It's the American dream. These are the wicked, comfortable, rich, with no care, no concern, full up. Verse 13, 
He says, as for me, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, I have, I have done what is right. I have tried to be right. I have tried to play by the rules. I've tried to do what God says. And what's the result? All in vain, emptiness. Look at the wicked. Look at the arrogant. Look at the people who exploit other people. Look at those who take advantage of other people. They're flourishing, and I don't think God even notices. Look at me. I'm trying to follow you, and I'm empty. He says, God, I've, I've followed you my entire life, and what do I have to show for it? Emptiness. And there isn't there isn't even anyone he can talk to about it. Verse 15, he says, if I had said, I will speak thus, in other words, if I told others what I'm actually thinking, what I'm actually feeling, if I had told other people, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have betrayed the people of Israel I'm responsible to lead in worship to you, God. If I had told them, I'm not even sure I believe this anymore. I'm not even sure I want this role anymore. I'm not even sure I want to follow you anymore when life out there looks so good. If I had stood up and said, hey, guess what, everyone? What I've been talking about for years, I don't believe it. He said, I would have, I would have betrayed your children. Who do you talk to when you're the guy leading Sunday school? When you're the person directing the choir, when you're uh, leading a small group of students, when you're uh, teaching second graders, when you're preparing communion, when you're up here preaching a sermon, who do you talk to when you start to wonder if it's all really true? Asaph has found himself in that situation, this sense of... Um, this, this burdensome sense of trying to understand how what he sees out there in the world matches up with what he's preaching and teaching and singing about in the temple. He describes it in verse 16, the sense, the oppressive nature of this struggle he's going through. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. A wearisome, a burdensome, a, a tiresome task toil, a, a job that nobody wants because it's just drained him dry. This is Asaph's life. It might be your life. But what turned the corner for Asaph comes in the next verse. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome, an odious, burdensome task, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. See, we've been spending the last four weeks, and we'll take the next three weeks, talking through what we do when we worship, what we do when we get together every week, because we believe that what we do when we worship works back on us and transforms us and shapes us and changes us into a specific kind of worshiper. And what Asaph experiences in this moment of worship is analogous to what some of us experience when we come together in worship, a, a, a restructuring, a reframing, a reordering of the way we look at the world, a, a, a way of understanding the world outside the sanctuary because of what we've experienced inside 
the sanctuary. For Asaph, there's this key moment, a key experience of worship that shifts his perspective, and the same thing can happen to us, especially when we pray together. We're spending our time this morning talking about prayer, congregational prayer. What happens when we gather into a room and pray together? Because this is an important part of what we do every single week. And uh, one author was writing about this, uh, this idea of praying together, and I love the way he painted this picture. If you've never seen someone pray before, he says, really think about it. You've got a group of, he says, relatively normal-looking people which I think is a compliment. We've got this relatively normal-looking group together who appears to be having a conversation with someone who is not present, which we're all used to because we have telephones. We talk to people not physically present, but at least then there's someone on the other end of the line. So if you're only hearing half of it, you can kind of guess what's going on on the other half, right? Uh, but when we're together and praying, it, it's, it looks, if you're cynical, it looks a lot more like this, the scruffy bearded guy downtown who's kind of carrying on an animated conversation with himself, right? I mean, prayer is odd if you're cynical, but I think that's our first clue as to what prayer actually does uh, to us and for us when we pray together. When we come together and we gather in a room like this and someone says, pray with me, and we all, however we, we, we bow or we clasp our hands or whatever we do to sort of uh, be an active participant in what the other person is praying, we are as a people acknowledging that what we see on the surface is not all there is. Right, when we say let's pray, we are acknowledging as a people in front of a world that says what you can experience is all that there is, what you can see or taste or touch uh, or smell uh, or hear, that is the limit of reality. When we say, let us pray or pray with me, we are all acknowledging there is more going on than what we can see. One theologian speaks about prayer and corporate prayer. He says, when we pray together, it makes us into a people that doesn't settle for appearances. We recognize there's another reality that we have to keep in mind. And this is what has happened to Asaph uh, in this moment that he talks about in verse 17 when he says that... Uh, he went into the sanctuary of God and then discerned their end. He said, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, a burdensome task. He didn't know where to go to find the information that would make these things line up until this one moment of worship when he finally put the pieces together. Uh, when God moved in him and he put the pieces together, he said, ah, finally, my worlds can hold together. When we pray together, we're doing the same thing Asaph was doing, acknowledging that there is another layer of reality that we're otherwise unaware of, and a layer of reality we have to apply to the world outside the sanctuary if it's going to make sense. See, prayer for Asaph and for us literally changes the way we see the world. 
the way we perceive reality around us. Uh, it comes through in the psalm. Look at verse 21. Asaph says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, uh, meaning when he was still in the grip of envy and resentment, when my soul was embittered, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. A wild animal following instinct, um, maybe a domesticated uh, cattle or something like that, um, just going after what it can taste and where the next meal comes from. It says, when I couldn't put these pieces together, when I was limiting myself to the perspective outside the sanctuary, I had nothing more than instinct and senses. He's saying, essentially, I was insensate when I didn't have this higher level of reality in, in my awareness. Prayer together, when we gather and acknowledge there's more going on than just what we can see, immediately forces us to reframe what we see outside the sanctuary by what we believe inside the sanctuary. Prayer together holds our worlds together. So you can see how it, it changed the way Asaph saw the world. It also changed the way he saw where he was going and where the people that he had been envious of were going. You know, he said in verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. He's saying, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm on loose ground and I'm about to go down. He says, but in verse 18, he says, now it occurs to me, truly, you set them, the arrogant and the wicked, in slippery places. He's like, you make them fall to ruin. He's saying, look, I may have felt weak, but they're standing on black ice and don't even know it. They seem strong and like they have it all together, but they're literally standing on ground that is about to give way and are unaware. In a moment, they'll be gone. He says in verse 17, I discerned their end uh, in 19, how they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, as, as empty as a phantom. As, as a bad dream when you wake up and realize it was just a dream. So they're literally that empty. I thought I was the empty one, and they were full, but they're, they're as empty as a bad dream. He says, I discerned their end, and it also changed the way he saw his own end. In verse 24, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward, or in the end, you will receive me to glory to the endless glory that is the joy of knowing and being with God. He says, man, I was looking at their today and at my today, and there was no comparison. I choose, choose their today over mine any day. He says, but when I look at their tomorrow versus my tomorrow, they're precariously positioned, about to be swept away. He says, I'm, I'm held by your hand. I'm with you. I have your guidance. I have your counsel. And I have, have your presence. Which would you choose? Asaph says there's no comparison. It, it may be difficult to follow God, especially when you're looking around and like power and wealth and all of that seems so attractive and like it, it leads to such a better life. It's maybe difficult to follow God, but knowing God, knowing God is a, of such surpassing value. He sums it up in verses 27 and 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. 
but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. See, Asaph, as he's finally putting together his inside-the-sanctuary perspective on who God is and applying that reality outside the sanctuary, outside the room, finally these two pieces, these two worlds that have been at odds finally make sense. When I went into the sanctuary of God, worship transformed the way he saw the world, the way he saw the end, and it transformed his own emotional response to that story and what God had done. Look at verse 25. Uh, well, actually, back up to 23. I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. I think for Asaph, uh, the moment that really decided this for him, the moment that really brought clarity to his crisis of faith was the moment that he realized that even as he had been in this experience of Verse 2, having almost stumbled, having slipped, feeling this envy, looking and watching and contemplating the life of the wicked and arrogant, that even in every single one of those moments, he says, I realize I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You've been holding my hand this entire time. And maybe realizing for the first time that God had been with him even in the doubt, even in the crisis of faith, even in the envy and the resentment and the sinful focus on, on this seemingly full good life, even in all of those moments, God had been with him holding his hand. He responds in verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Nothing on earth I desire. I know, I said at the beginning of the psalm, I've been desiring all of this that I see out there, but now I realize there's nothing better than desiring you. There's nothing better than delighting in you. There's nothing more valuable than knowing you. Following God may be hard and costly, but knowing God is of infinite worth. Knowing God makes it all worth it. See, this moment of worship for Asaph and the coming together of us to together pray and recognize that there is another reality working behind the scenes, or I should say working above the scenes, that changes the way we think about the end of our story and shapes the way we feel about who God is and what he's done for us. Prayer together holds these worlds together. Prayer together holds our worlds together, our inside the sanctuary world and our outside the sanctuary world. How many of you are uh, willing to admit that sometimes it's easier to believe in here than it is to believe out there? First hour, I got a show of hands. Okay, I got, yeah, so me too. It is easier to believe in here than it is to believe out there. We start to see when we're out there and we, all we have is what's right in front of us. It's so easy to begin to forget that there is another layer of reality. There is another end to the story. 
So if, if that's you, that's where you find yourself today, if you find yourself in a crisis of faith, uh, or even a minor crisis of faith, maybe you find yourself going into one or coming out of one, I don't know, wherever you find yourself, there, there's a few things I want you to keep in mind uh, from Psalm 73 and from Asaph's experience as you struggle to believe out there what you gladly sing in here. Two things. First is, don't stop worshiping. Don't stop worshiping. Sometimes when, when we begin to doubt, the very first thing we decide to do is sort of pull away from uh, the people who may begin to question us about those things that we're doubting. I've talked to some of you who have said, I show up to church every week and I feel disingenuous because I'm not sure I believe it. And if you're one of those who's talked to me about that, I've told you that's the absolute best place to be. The church is full of people who aren't sure if they believe it. The church is full of people who are trying to figure out, uh, today, do I still believe this? Does it still seem true out there? That's why we come together. So that what we proclaim as true, what we live as true, what we perform as true in here can shape the way we interact with the world out there. Don't stop worshiping. Every commentator on this psalm pointed out that the, the moment, the key moment for Asaph was not a moment of, uh, the key moment of coming through his crisis of faith was not a key moment of intellectual development. It was a moment of worship. Verse 16, 17, it doesn't say, you know, this was a wearisome task. It seemed, seemed to me a wearisome task until I read the book of the law and a few commentaries on it. And then it made sense. Boy, I just couldn't put these worlds together until I went to a Sunday school class that finally made it clear. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then, then it made sense. If God for you is more of an idea to be contemplated than a person to be adored and loved then you will continually struggle to make sense of who God is and what he's doing. See, God doesn't command us to understand him. He commands us to worship him. He commands us to adore him before we simply speculate about him. He calls us to worship before he calls us to understanding. If you can't love things that you don't understand, well, it's going to affect the rest of your life too. I adore my wife. I do not understand her. <laughs> and some of you wives out there are saying, yes, I adore my husband, and I am completely into the dark, in the dark of what's going on in his mind. I read a book a while ago that was talking about uh, marriage and getting along, and uh, this one super high-performing guy, and, and the wife finally figured out how to love him when somebody came up to her and said, look, your husband's not the kind of person you understand. He's just the kind of person you love. But if you have to understand before you can love, you're not going to be able to love God because you're not going to be able to understand him. We worship in order to understand. We believe so that it makes sense. So don't stop worshiping. Number two, keep praying. Keep praying. 
Whether you can pray on your own or you need to come together with us to pray together, let the church pray for you. I don't mean for you as in we're going to, you know, pray by name, uh, God, let take away so-and-so's doubts. I mean pray for you as pray in your place. Let the gathered worship of the church that you are regularly part of be the thing that shows you how to continue to pray, how to continue to believe, how to continue to live the truth that we proclaim in here when we're out there. Let the church's prayer together hold your world together for you until your own prayer can hold it together yourself. I had thought when I was 20 and I went through this crisis of faith and, and came out of it that that would, would likely be the last one. I was like, yes, I've gone through it, now I'm, now I'm through it. Uh, but what I've discovered is what, what brought me back to the faith when I was 20 was the same thing that brought me back to the faith when I was 24 uh, and when I was 27, when I was 32, and when I was 35. So I've got two or three more years before I'll need it again. But uh, what, what brought me back to the faith was what has always brought me back to the faith. It's been worship. It's being with this church family weekly, singing and praying and gathering and weeping and taking communion and granting forgiveness and praying together. That has for me continued to be the the thing that God has used to bring me back to him over and over and over again. Prayer together holds our worlds together so that what we sing about and proclaim in here can affect and change and help us understand what's going on out there. So if you're doubting, doubt faithfully. And if you're doubting, don't feel bad about doubting. Half the people in this room are doubting right now. People who have never doubted are not that interesting. Or at least not as interesting as the people who have struggled. they got better stories to tell anyway. So if you're with me in this sort of ASAF experience, then I'll see you again next week as the church's worship together holds our worlds together. Pray with me. Father, we know that Asaph did not think his way into his crisis of faith. Experience brought it on. We recognize we will not think our way out of the crisis we may be in right now. Only an experience of you will draw us out, draw us through, and prepare us for the next one. Father, give us grace to see in you the faithfulness of one who is holding our hand even as we go through doubt and struggle. 
Help us to see in the face of Jesus one who himself went through a dark night of the soul when he doubted. Help us to be a people who are faithful to you. Even when we're not sure. And grant us grace that we too may be able to say, who, who else is there in heaven but you? Who do we desire on earth except you? We pray this because of the surpassing grace of Jesus who came to us before we even knew he was there. In his name we pray. Amen.